I've got my Bible open to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 28 and encourage you to open up to that same portion as well. Today is the second part of our study of Saul's going to see the witch at the village of Endor, in trouble at Endor. Maybe you heard us go through this passage last week and it piqued your curiosity about how much interest there is in the occultic world. And of course, in the modern era, there is a growing interest in um, the paranormal. And you can see it on television. One character who's had a lot of influence in the last couple decades is James Van Pra. He wrote a book back in 1998 called Talking to Heaven. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for about a month. Autobiographical book about his departure from organized religion and his drift into the paranormal, and then telling people how they can develop their psychic gifts. He's written at least 12 books, other books, and then collaborated on TV shows, featured on talk shows. There was a four-part dramatized miniseries about talking to ghosts. There was a made-for-TV movie. Some of you might remember a CBS series a number of years ago called Ghost Whisperer. That ran for five years, and that was uh, his brainchild. Well, the Bible knows about the interest that people have in the spiritual world and that that is tempting, especially when God seems to be silent. People try to get into the spiritual realm some other way. And the Old Testament warns the Israelites again and again and again not to go to mediums or to witches or wizards or to use any kind of necromancy. The most striking example of it of someone doing it is in this passage here in 1 Samuel 28. The famous British poet Lord Byron said about this passage that it is, quote, the most finished and finest witch scene that was ever written or conceived. It beats all the ghost scenes I've ever read, end quote. But this story in 1 Samuel 28 does not show ghost whispering to be a good thing. Far from it. It's part of a series of stories that are showing how David is rising in power and position while Saul is falling and failing. Saul is wandering farther from God than he ever has before. And by the time this book is done, David will have survived and thrived while Saul will have failed and fallen. This chapter, uh, which we began to look at last, last week, teaches that Saul's search for unholy help at Endor ends up proving both his unworthiness and God's prophetic word. Briefly to review what we looked at last week, it starts off with a frightening mess in Jezreel in verses 3 to 6. The storyteller tells us about the spiritual terrain that Samuel is dead and Saul had at least officially gotten rid of mediums and, and the like. But there's this spirit, the military crisis that had formed. The Philistines had moved 70 miles up to the north and were threatening to cut Israel in half in the Jezreel Valley. And Saul is at a total loss. He, he lacks kingly courage. He lacks divine insight. God's not speaking to him anymore at all. He doesn't know what to do. And so he cooks up this idea uh, to go to Endor to find a medium. It's an unholy search in verses 7 through 11, as his men tell him, well, we think there's one over here, and he disguises himself, and he takes two men with him, and, and the, the 
the medium is kind of uneasy about all of this, and he convinces her that it's safe, and Samuel appears. It's a horrifying sight. The medium is not expecting that kind of spirit to present itself. And she suddenly puts two and two together and figures out, this is Saul. Why have you deceived me? And Saul says, don't worry, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to prosecute you. What do you see? What's he look like? And she describes him, and there is, in this vision of Samuel, he's wearing that same priestly outfit, that royal mantle, uh, that uh, priestly mantle, the last time Saul had seen, uh, had seen him years before. It's a horrifying sight. Now, we're going to pick up the story now in verse 15. Verses 15 through 19 is a haunting prophecy, literally a haunting prophecy. Um, we'll read it piece by piece as we go through the story. And the, the first thing we see in verse 15 is that the prophet is unhappy. Look there in verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Well, this doesn't bode well. Saul has gone through all of this effort to try to get a word from God, uh, even if it's just through Samuel, about what he should do and what military tactic he should partake of. And uh, this is not a good start. The last time that Saul and Samuel had an audience was way back in chapter 15. And there, Samuel told him, basically, God is done with you. You are going to lose the kingdom. Samuel, at that story, do you remember what he did after he finished talking to, to Saul? Do you know what he did? He took out his sword and he hacked King Agag to pieces. You don't want to get Samuel mad. <laughs> Samuel here saying that he's disturbed doesn't bode well. We don't know exactly how Samuel and Saul talked to each other. Did, did Saul hear it directly, or was this medium the voice for Samuel? We don't know. I, su I suspect that he is able to speak with him directly, because at the end of the story, it says that the woman comes back and finds Saul on the ground, which suggests to me that maybe she is either zoned out or stepped aside. Despite Lord Byron saying that this is the best witch story he's ever read, there are a lot of details left out, aren't there? We don't know uh, exactly who heard what and how things appeared. I, and I think the author does that intentionally to keep us from getting too caught up in this, in, in this paranormal stuff. You see, this was not a normal seance. This is not the way things normally went. There's a bit of divine intervention in this in case. It's not a successful seance. There is no biblical method for communing with the dead. Don't come to this passage to think, well, maybe I could, you know, conjure up Uncle Jerry or Phil or Bill or whoever. No. You know, by the way, this is not the only time in Scripture where someone from the dead has come back to speak. In the New Testament, our Lord Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Moses and Elijah show up and speak with him, not conjured up by any magic at all. Richard Phillips says that this reminds us that the souls of those who die in Christ yet live in glory, whereas the two Old Testament greats, Moses and Elijah, appeared in order to rejoice with Jesus in the gospel when Samuel appeared to apostate Saul he came with only the grim, grim condemnation of the law. 
Samuel is not happy. He has been at peace, at rest, not, not sleeping, but at peace. And now he's roused to work for his most ungrateful client. Well, the verse goes on, and we see that the king is uneasy. Saul explains why he's summoned him. In the middle of verse 15, And Saul answered, I am greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me and no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may make known to me what I should do. In, in a nutshell, he wants some kind of help from heaven. It was customary for kings to pray before battle, to seek some sort of divine word, whether they're pagan kings or, or Israelite kings. But Saul's not getting a word at all. Earlier we were told in verse 6 that the Lord was no longer speaking to Saul, whether that was through prophets or through dreams or through Urim, which is that special mantle that the uh, was inside the special mantle that the high priest wore. Did you notice that Saul didn't even mention the Urim this time? Maybe, maybe feeling just a little bit guilty about killing all of those priests at Nob. He actually lost access to the Urim because the surviving priest took it and went to David. Saul's speech in this verse is loaded with me and I. Did you notice that? Three times, I, 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 I. And then four times, me, 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 me. Very self-focused, as always. And yet for all this talk about himself, there's no admission of his sins. I mean, let's leave aside the, the part about using a witch. Let's just leave that bad part aside. How about chasing David, trying to kill God's anointed? How about his continued disobedience for which he never repents? Oh, David would not be perfect. David commits sins. In fact, even his hiding out with the Philistines is highly questionable. But you always see, in the, at least in the long run, there's a heart of repentance in David that you don't see in Saul. <laughs> it's kind of funny that Saul wants to hear from Samuel because everything Samuel's told him for most of his, his reign, he hasn't listened to. Samuel tells him to do something, and he does it halfway. Most of the time, Samuel would give him instructions, and Saul would engage in some kind of ungodly improvisation. And here is Saul hurting. You know, it is a sad thing when you see people, they might be friends, co-workers, neighbors, people on the street, people who are hurting because of their sinful choices. And, they, they, and people have encouraged them, counseled them to think differently, to live differently, to trust God, what have you. And it's pew, pew, in one ear, out the other. And, and they're hurting, and your, your heart hurts for them. And they might even come to you for advice. But a lot of times, what they, they really don't want advice, they want approval. They don't really want to change. And it's a heartbreaking thing. They want affirmation, not transformation. And that is really the heart of Saul. He wants some heavenly word that things are going to work out okay. But his heart is not aimed toward the Lord. In fact, his seeking more information here from Samuel is going to result in more confrontation from Samuel. 
he's going to get exactly the opposite of what he expects. I suppose that's not all that dissimilar to the way a lot of folks are when they, they come for uh, counseling or uh, they want some advice. And what they get, if it's sometimes Bible-based advice, wise counsel, godly input, is exactly the opposite of what they expect and exactly the opposite of what they want to hear. And up goes the wall and out they go the door. He's trying, Saul here, to be delivered from the Philistines, but in the end, he's going to find out that his fate has been sealed and he'll come to his death by the hand of the Philistines. The prophet is unhappy, the king is uneasy, and note now in verses 16 and 19 how the prophecy is more gloomy. The old word that Samuel had given to him years before is renewed. Verses 16 to 18. Look at verse 16 with me. Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? This is a reminder that you have made yourself an enemy of God. I mean, Samuel is, Samuel is God's spokesman. Why does he think that Samuel is going to share with him anything different than what he shared with him already? It's really a stupid way for Saul to be acting. Sin does have a stupefying effect upon us, doesn't it? Earlier texts in, in the book tell us how God's blessing had left Saul back in chapter 16, verse 14. The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Or how about chapter 18, verse 12? Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Saul's lack of God in his life is even evidenced in this conversation. So verses 16 to 19, Samuel, the spirit of Samuel, will mention the name of the Lord seven times in those four verses, and Saul will mention God once. God is hardly even on his lips, much less in his life. He has made himself into an arch enemy of God. He is, as I've said on other occasions, an antichrist. Now, it's true that all people who are outside of Christ, in some sense, are enemies of God. This is the language of the book of Romans, for instance, and Colossians even. Listen to Colossians 1, 21 to 22. Paul's talking to Gentile Christians who, you know, they now know Christ. And he says, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You used to be God's enemies by the way you lived, but Christ has changed you and brought you into union with him. That's, that's wonderful gospel truth. All of us without Christ are enemies to the Lord, and yet it is possible to become so opposed to God to move so far away from him that it is, it, you stand out as an enemy par excellence of God. And you no longer hear his word. Ralph Davis has said, if you despise God's word, he will take it from you. And if you persistently refuse to obey God's speech, you will endure God's silence. 
Look at verse 17 as this old word is renewed. The Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, to David. As you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Previous prophecies made against Saul are here reaffirmed. He is going to lose his kingship, and there will be no dynasty, no little Sauls coming after him to, to rule. Instead, it's going to shift over to his son-in-law, David. This is what Samuel had told him uh, back in chapter 15, verses 28 to 29. Why don't you flip back to that briefly with me. For Samuel 15, verses 28 to 29. This is the last prophetic word that um, part of the last prophetic speech that Samuel had made to him when he was alive. Chapter 15, verse 28. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel, that's God, will not lie or change his mind. He is not a man that he should change his mind. This is an irrevocable prophecy. And here Samuel, years later, in a different form, renews it. The kingdom has been torn. Isn't that interesting? He's still king. Still king. Not for very long. Do you know how long it will be before Saul loses it all? 24 hours. This chapter is a fast forward. When we come to chapter 29, the story's going to go back in time some weeks and months to when Saul was, David was with the Philistines until it catches up to chapter 31. In 24 hours, all of these things will come to pass. The tipping point with Saul was years earlier when the Lord had commissioned him to engage in a holy war. The, the Amalekites were a, 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 a really decrepit people, and, and the, the, the time of patience had expired. Saul is commissioned to go do what Joshua had not finished, to remove the Amalekites, and he doesn't do it. And he spares a bunch of their flock, he spares their king, and does all this pious improvising. And his failure to fully obey God's command is what is the tipping point in his losing the kingdom. Saul somehow has it in his mind that God's approach to sin is, oh, we'll just let bygones be bygones. That is not the way to deal with sin. It does not work that way. Yes, God is merciful, God is patient, and he is long-suffering, but that does not mean he does not do right as the judge of all the earth. Don't confuse his patience with his sweeping things under the rug. Thank God the rest of the Bible tells us there's a way to deal with the problem of sin. It's something we're going to celebrate today at the Lord's table as we remember the price that King Jesus has paid for our sin. The old word of doom is renewed here against Saul, and there's even a new word of doom in verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. 
Earlier, Samuel repeated a prophecy he had made years before. Here's a new one. And the effects are going to be almost immediate. Not only is David going to get the kingdom, but there are going to be immediate losses. The battle that Saul is so afraid of with the Philistines, he has good reason to be afraid of it. He is going to die in it. He, and it will turn out to be three of his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malki Shuah, all four of them are going to die within 24 hours. And by mentioning his sons, this highlights how the prophecy is still against Saul having any kind of dynasty. The Philistines will kill the king and most of the royal heirs. Isn't this an ironic twist? Because uh, you remember in the previous chapter, Saul has been trying to get the Philistines to kill David. And it's going to boomerang on him. Twice in this one verse, Samuel reiterates, it will be the Philistines who bring this about. You and your sons will be with me. That's not an encouraging word. This is not like what the Lord Jesus said to the thief on the cross. Remember that? This day you shall be with me in paradise. <laughs> Those are grand words. You will be with me, though, brought no comfort like it did to the thief. To Saul it brought only grief. Saul would not join Samuel in paradise, in the paradise portion of Sheol, not at all. Saul would be with Samuel only in the sense that he would enter into the realm of the dead. Well, come with me now to the last portion of the story. Verses 20 to 25. It's a change of mood and scene. It's a farewell meal for King Saul. Samuel's vision goes away, and the result is that Saul is full of fear in verse 20. Then Saul immediately fell full length upon the ground and was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day and all night. In verse 14, when Saul first knew that the uh, spirit of Samuel was present, we're told that he bowed down on the ground, and now he's just collapsed on the ground, fallen face down, sprawled out, full length, full of his height. This, this man who was famous for how tall he was early in the book, is now just collapsed into nothing. He's like that statue of Dagon, the Philistine god who had fallen flat on its face in defeat before the Ark of the Covenant. Saul is petrified as, is as petrified as the stuff that idol was made out of. His weakened condition is not only psychological, it's also physical due to having had something like a 24-hour fast. Was he fasting before the battle? He was known earlier to, to declare fasts around battle times that were not practical. Maybe he was fasting before going to the medium to hope that uh, somehow that would make things go better. <laughs> that didn't work. In the books of Samuel, there are several times of fasting that are mentioned, and they're always associated with periods of anguish. The first one is Hannah in chapter 1. 
she's grieving over the fact that she can't have a child and she will not eat at the festival with the rest of the family. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David uh, has heard about the, the judgment that's coming on him because of the adultery with Bathsheba. And he, he would not eat until his son had passed away. He fasts. Here, Saul is fasting in anguish over the war and the word of doom. You know, fasting can be a good thing. It, it can be a way of saying, I, I'm not going to focus on the physical right now. In fact, every time I feel a pang of hunger, I'm going to use that as a stimulus to pray because I have a greater need and I'm not feeling that enough. It can be a good thing, but there is no magic in fasting. There is no magic to it that undoes the mess of sin. The only route to getting rid of sin is through grace, the grace that is offered through faith. And Saul is not trusting in the Lord at all. He's trusting in himself and his own improvisation. There's a famous um, British poet named Rudyard Kipling. He wrote a short little poem on indoor Oh, the road to Endor is the oldest road and the craziest road of all. Straight it runs to the witch's abode as it did in the days of Saul. And nothing has changed on the, on the sorrow in store for such as go down the road to Endor. And you don't need to go to a witch to find yourself in the kind of sorrow that Saul has. He is trying to improvise his way into God's graces, to get there on his own means, to meet God on his own terms, and it will be disastrous. It is an old road. But the road we need to take is the road of grace through faith in Christ. Come with me now to verses 21 to 25. After we see Saul full of fear, we come to Saul's final meal. The medium makes a generous offer in verses 21 to 22. The woman came to Saul and saw that he was terrified, said to him, Behold, your maidservant has obeyed you, and I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to your words which you spoke to me. So now also please listen to the voice of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you that you may eat and have strength when you go on your way. She sees what's happened to him, how devastated he is. I think she has heard what Samuel has said. It's hard to know all of her motives here. Is she feeling real sympathy for him? Uh, is she bribing him to make sure he doesn't turn on her and have her exterminated like he'd promised that he would not? <laughs> Maybe she's worried that, you know, if he hangs around too long, the Philistines are to come, come there and kill him and then kill her too. And the last thing she says, and you go on your way. You know, we need to get you out of here. Uh, whatever her motive, she wants him gone. And she repeats words for obeying and listening four times in these verses, which is so ironic because Saul is anything but a good listener. He hasn't been willing to listen to Samuel or the Lord but for the first time in a long time, he listens to someone <laughs> over something little. And it is too little, and it is too late. This woman has a key role here at the end of 1 Samuel. You know, the book of 1 Samuel has had some key women in it. The book opens with a key woman, Hannah. 
who gives birth to Samuel, whose name in Hebrew means God has heard. <laughs> and it concludes with a woman who helps Saul to hear a word from God, though not the word he wants to hear. And what very different voices these women have. She offers to prepare a meal. Now, the way it's worded here is a piece of bread, which is a big understatement. This is used elsewhere in the Old Testament. You know, Abraham says to the angelic visitors to come, let me fix some bread for you, and then he kills a fattened calf, <laughs> you know. So it's, a, it's sort of a, a Middle Eastern understatement. And, and the king understands what she means, and he's reluctant, but his reluctance is overcome in verse 23. It, it says that he refused and said, I will not eat. However, his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to them. So he rose from the ground and sat on the bed. Saul has no appetite, but his servants know he needs to go to war. He must have strength to lead the troops. And so the three of them, his two assistants and this one woman, finally convince him to sit up and eat. He sits on the bed for a meal, which was actually a common place to sit. You would normally don't take your meals there, but most of our homes aren't one large room. Uh, so the bed or the couch was a common place for people to sit during mealtime. And these might seem like some strange details that the storyteller is giving us, don't they? I mean, all of this talk about a have some food and, no, I don't want to, and, yeah, you need to. And the, isn't it interesting, this sort of unusual details? Maybe the purpose that the, the Spirit has put it on the author of this book to include these is to show that even though Saul is finally listening to somebody, the tragedy is it's too late for him to listen to God. You and I know people like this who have, they've heard the word of God, the good word of God, that there is salvation, that there's new life in Christ. They've heard it, and they've heard it, and they keep putting it off and putting off, and they, they, they think that responding to it is like toggling a switch. That one day, when they're good and ready, they can just flip it on, and it's going to work. That is not the way it works. Our hearts do not respond like appliances. We ought not to put off any of God's calls. When I was a boy, I remember we would have evangelists come to our church, and they would preach hard, calling people to repentance. And I remember stories of men who would, they would stand in the pew while the pastor was talking, and they gripped the pew, and their knuckles would turn white in resistance. Now, I don't know all the pressures that were on them. Some of it might have been social pressure. Some of it might have been emotional pressure from the music. I, I can't say. But there were some people who, they walked away, and they never came to Christ, despite occasionally saying, one day, a more convenient day, another day, we are never guaranteed another moment. Let us not waste the word of God. Come with me to verses 24 to 25, where the costly meal is furnished. There is a royal feast that this woman makes for him in verse 24. Far from being just bread, look what the verse says. The woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly slaughtered it, and she took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread from it. She had a calf in the house. What sort of a strange woman is this? Well, 
uh, many homes in ancient days on the bottom level, some of them would be two-story homes, and on the bottom level, a portion of it would be where the livestock would be kept. This is likely the kind of place where our Lord Jesus was born in, you know, when he was born in the, in the stable portion of a house as opposed to the place where the people would normally sleep. Not at all unusual. She has a fattened calf, which means that it's a baby cow that has been stall kept. But that also means it's been very well fed. It also means it doesn't exercise very much. So it's really fat and juicy. It will be tasty. The meat would be considered choice. And she sets out to prepare a meal fit for a king. She slaughters it as quickly as she can, which uh, could have been done in a matter of a few hours. And uh, we don't know all of the preparation details she goes through. All it says is she slaughtered it. And we assume she cooked it. Maybe she only cooks a portion of it. Maybe she puts it on a spit, you know, and so portions of it cook faster than others. I, I, I have an exegetical insight I'd like to share with you. The text doesn't tell us how well she cooked it, but I think maybe she cooked it medium unwell. <laughs> she has been unwell throughout this whole story. <laughs> she uh, also makes some bread, and notice that she makes unleavened bread, which means there's no yeast in it. You don't have to wait for it to rise, so this will be done faster. All of this could have been done as fast as three hours, four maybe. Do you wonder what Saul is thinking as he's sitting on the edge of that bed for all those hours in the middle of the night with the words of Samuel ringing in his ears? I almost wonder if he's in sort of a stunned, catatonic state, numb all over. The Lord Jesus tells a story about someone else who killed a fattened calf. Remember in that parable about the man who... Who, who slaughtered the fattened calf for his wayward son who came home. What a joyful meal that was. But here, this meal is served up as some sort of an unholy last supper. It's almost like Saul's last meal before his execution. Look with me now in verse 25 and see how this is a last supper. She brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. This little verse is full of ironies. He has been having a meal fit for a king, but he is, it is served to a man who is unfit to be king. Another irony is that when Samuel and Saul first met, way back in chapter 9, Samuel was having a banquet. And Saul was ushered up to meet him and ended up seating right next to Samuel. And turns out the meal is in your honor, Saul. And the last time Samuel and Saul meet, there's another banquet. But it's not a time of joy. Now he eats a meal cooked up by a witch. As we read the story, we cannot help think of another supper by another in the line of Israel's kings. Jesus was sitting with his disciples at night before he would be betrayed and then killed. He sat with them to enjoy Passover. Around that table were 12 men 
one of whom was a betrayer, one of whom was an antichrist who had his own kingdom plans. And like Saul, he went out into the night, and the darkness of his soul swallowed him whole. Richard Phillips says, John says that Judas Iscariot, that after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Philip says the apostle was noting not only the time, but also something of the state of Judas's soul and the destiny to which he was turning in unbelief. Like Saul, Judas had a heart of darkness. Jesus' words about Judas are true of all those who turn from his light to darkness, the darkness of sin, and to a Saul-like self-rule. Jesus said of Judas, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Saul's account ends with the words, they arose and went away that night with only the darkness of divine abandonment before him. Phillips concludes, Jesus also went out into the darkness, but on the third day he rose in the light of an open tomb. And all those who place their sins on his cross may know the joy of eternal life in his grace. Saul has sought for unholy help, but it has ended up proving only his unworthiness and confirming God's word, a last supper in which there was no joy, no hope. We Every time we celebrate the Lord's table, we remember that Jesus had a meal with his disciples and the outcome was very different. That we have fellowship with a living Savior who arose from the dead, who defeated death. Ralph Davis says, at the battle of Golgotha, Jesus has walked out into the outer darkness in order that you might walk into the light of life. Now the question presses upon you, have you yet been seeking this one who has endured the darkness for you? They got up and went out that night, but there is a light that shines in the darkness in Jesus Christ. <laughs>